0: If you got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 2. Read uh, verses 1, 2, and half of 3. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and a little of 3. Therefore, we we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift drift, underline drift, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's the word of God. Now some of you are like Yeah, is this Groundhog Day? Like, I feel like you read that last week, and then we heard like a long message about that whole thing last week. Why are we on this again this week? Well, I told you, it's Hebrews, and we're gonna be in Hebrews as long as we can. That's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is I really do feel like, as I prayed and processed through this week, that this is something that we need to lean back into, If last week we talked about truly what in the world the author is saying here and the implications of that, this week we're going to lean into, okay, how do we actually live this out? How do we be people who don't drift away from the things of God? Last week we leaned in heavy to the world is not going to take you to God that you have to have your faith put in God and that is what allows you to go upstream against the current of the world into the things of God, that nobody just drifts into a good marriage. You don't just wake up 17 years later and be like, we just never fight and you just always agree with me and things are always so peachy and clean and man, it's just so nice and I'm glad you do the toothpaste the way I wanted you and I'm glad that I can do all this. Nobody has marriages like that. You don't drift into that marriage. You don't drift into parenting where you just wake up and your kids are 18 and they're just like, hey, you know, I, I'm so thankful for who you are and what you're doing. And, and, and you're like, I don't know what I did. I just, you know, we, we just let them find their own path. Like, no, those are the kids who end up on the news. Um, you don't drift into those things. You only drift into places you don't wanna go. But the real things, the true things, the best things in life require us to go upstream. And last week we talked about how Jesus, he calls us to live an upstream life. But here, here's the kicker here. He's not calling you to go upstream against the current of the world for him. Jesus knows that you can't go upstream. You can't resist this world. You can't resist the pull of your flesh. You can't conquer and fight Satan in and of yourself. So he doesn't offer you an invitation to go upstream for him. He offers you an invitation to go upstream with him. He says, I'll be with you. I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with us. And that's not just a Christmas Jesus. That's everyday Jesus. I need you with me, Jesus, to be able to go upstream. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go back, circle back right one more time to the passages that we read, make sure they're in our head and heart. And then we're going to go through what I hope is a very practical guide to how to live an upstream against the current of the world kind of life. All right, here's our passage one more time. Therefore, you must pay pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, what we had heard there, what the author is talking about, what we're leaning into here is what you've heard about Jesus. That to have seen Jesus is to see God, that he is God's son in flesh and blood, that he is the creator of the whole entire universe. He exact imprint of the nature of God. And he is the radiance of God's glory shining here. He is the biggest deal because he is God. So pay attention to what we've heard. Don't drift away from it. Don't let go of the new life you have in Christ and drift back into the old messed up ways of your whole religion and your whole way of trying to be your own God and trying to do things your own way. Don't drift back into that. He goes from there. He says for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's drawn this connection between us paying attention and us neglecting. And the point he's trying to make here is if you neglect and you don't pay attention to who Jesus is, you are going to drift away from it. At the end of drift is danger. At the end of drift, we're gonna talk about today, is tragedy. So what I wanna do is walk us through how to not drift in your faith. And I think, man, there has never been more of a, a pertinent time for the church to lean into this than right now. I feel like the undercurrent of the world is, is maybe stronger than it has ever been. At least that's what it feels like for me. It's a constant fight, it's a daily fight. Another one of the main reasons I wanna lean back into this today and say, you know, I know we talked about it last week, but I just can't move on, is the conversation that we had in our community group this past Sunday night around, the, we, we, we talked about it on Sunday and then we leaned into a community group and I just felt like everybody was like, man, we can relate and we feel this and we feel this pull and so, we're all kind of sitting around going, but like, what do we do? And so today I want to be able to lean into like, okay, what in the world do we do? And how do we actually be people who allow our upstream dreams about what our faith would be like, what type of mom we would be, what type of father we would be, how we would be able to be generous with our finances, how we'd be able to have all those upstream dreams about who we would be in Christ come true. And that's the hope. So let's talk about it from the side of drift. Here's what I'm gonna walk you through. Hopefully you take some notes on this and this can kind of be a field guide to go back to and and help navigate through life. Um, So if drift is going downstream, we're gonna go the exact opposite way and we're gonna go T-F-I-R-D, all right? So let's start with how do we do it. First, if we wanna avoid the drift, it starts with tragedy. Now, here's what I wanna talk to you about tragedy. Tragedy is both the ending point of spiritual drift And the starting point of discipleship. Say that again. Tragedy is both where drifting leads to and discipleship starts. Let's start with that first part. Tragedy is what spiritual drifting leads to. James, who was Jesus' brother, he said these words Shaboom. There we go. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if you're feeling tempted, it's not coming from God. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Whose desires? His So it's not God going to like, hey, come here, you know, do these bad things. I wanna test your faith and see if it's real or not. No, what James, Jesus' brother is saying here is that anytime you feel temptation, it's you being lured and enticed by your own fleshly, sinful desires. There's this part of you that looks at the things that this world has to offer, whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's food, whether it's power, whether it's comfort, whether it's security or safety, your flesh looks at the thing that this world can offer and it longs for those things and there's this lure that it goes to. If you have an NIV, it actually says each person is tempted when he is dragged by his own desires. And this is that downstream current. This is that thing that's pulling you there. He goes on, he says, then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So let's talk about this. He's getting kind of anatomical and talking about babies and conception and birth and all these such things and being full grown and going to die. Let me explain to you what in the world he's talking about here. So he says, you have this desire and then the desire gets conceived. And then when the desire is born, it leads to what sin. Okay. All right. So let's, let's, let's start with these two things. There's desire and conception. Here's how this works. And you've seen this happen in your life. It's the same way I've seen it happen in my life. I have this desire to have more money. And I remember last year when I was filling out my TurboTax thing online, that if I could have pressed that button and lied, I would have gotten a thousand more dollars back in the bank account. And so desire gets conceived when it's tax season this year. And I go, if that button shows up again, I don't know how I got it to show up in the first place because I have no idea what I'm doing, but I don't want to go pay somebody else to do my taxes. I just cross my fingers and hope I don't get audited. If that button shows up again though, I'm pressing it. That's when the desire is conceived. If it presents itself, I'm pressing the button. Desire is conceived when you go, if she gives me that look one more time, I'm gonna send that text I've been thinking about sending that I know I shouldn't. It's when you've already made up your mind to sin. you're just waiting on the opportunity for it to show up. That's the desire being conceived and eventually it's gonna lead to sin Now, this is where we talk about from the drift side. All spiritual drift. It's a lure. It's a dragging away. It ends where? It ends in death because God told Adam and Eve from the very beginning. He's been saying it over and over ever since. The wages of sin is death. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Now, drift ends in tragedy. But discipleship begins in tragedy as well. So let's talk about it. Jesus, he's, he's on the scene. He's talking to people about disciples, about being a disciple, being one of his followers. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's you saying, he's saying, you're gonna have to have a tragedy. We're gonna have to f- have a funeral for the way you thought your life was gonna be. Nobody, when they heard Jesus say, take up your cross, was thinking, oh, that means I gotta wear Christian t-shirts and send my kids to Christian school and that's what it means to be a Christian. No, when he said, you're gonna have to take up your cross and follow me, that was their way of understanding, Jesus' way of explaining, this is gonna cost me my life. This is gonna end in tragedy for me. And that's why Jesus says, if anybody wants to save his life, he has to lose it. Anybody who wants to hold on to his life, to hoard his life, to not be willing to surrender that life, that is the surefire way to lose it. Apostle uh, Paul he he explained this maybe even in, in a way that's a little bit easier to understand. In Romans six seven, he said, "For we know our old self was crucified with him." So my old self, all my desires, all my ways, all the things that I want to do—that old me was crucified. And again, you don't wake up and recover from crucifixion. That, like you you die there. It was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, it's dead, it can't be revived. Brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, hallelujah, amen, praise God. For, underline this, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So, this turning point moment where I realize I've been spiritually drifting and I feel bad about it, blah, blah, blah. What has to happen is there has to come this moment where tragedy happens. And it's the tragedy of being able to look downstream and see imminent death downstream. Now again, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to keep you drift and keep it so easy and nice and peaceful and everything else that you don't realize there's a 4,000 foot waterfall that drops into the pits of hell at the end of this lazy river. But to go, okay, I've got to go upstream. But you don't just go upstream and start rowing really hard. No, I'm just going to do all this myself. And I'm going to do all these things. And I'm going to keep my hopes. I'm going to keep my dreams. I'm going to keep my habits. I'm going to keep my stories. I'm going to keep my victim card. I'm going to keep all my things. And I'm going to keep going upstream with Jesus. That is not how it works. It starts at the moment where you realize how bad that is and how that is the only way you can escape heading there is if you surrender to Jesus. You can't get your boat upstream. Only he can do that. You go, Jesus... You are the only one who can save me. That's why I'm calling you Savior. But I refuse to only call you Savior. I'm calling you Lord. Because if you can get me out of this, you deserve every aspect of my entire life. You deserve to rule, to reign, and I I have to do what you tell me to do because you got me out of where I was heading. So what this means for us, very practical now, this means that some things, if you're gonna go upstream, some things are going to have... To die. Young people in the room. What this means is the idea that you're going to be a frat guy who's going to do keg stands at parties and send pictures around of of a bunch of different girls. That's going to have to die now because you're in Christ. Younger women, this means that you're going to have to die to this hope or dream or even desire or this, you know, you never maybe admit it, but. You're never going to be the person who's going to get a blue check verified for posting pictures of yourself in yoga pants online. Like, I'm in Christ now. I am dead to that dream. I am dead to that acclaim. I am dead to that approval. I am dead to those things. That is no longer a dream that I want. I realize that that's not, if you're a guy, I realize that that's not what a man of God is. A man of God is not one who sleeps with as many women as possible. A man of God is not somebody who just indulges in my flesh. A man of God is not somebody who does that. And a woman of God is not somebody who capitalizes on my body for the sake of gaining attention that I really want from God. You've got it. I have to be willing to to say, I am dead to these things. And it goes a step further. Let me stop talking about Gen Z and millennials. Let's talk to some of you older folks in the room. You got a retirement, okay? That's great, that's awesome. But remember, before you're an American, you're a Christian. And so what that means is, I don't look at my retirement the way Americans look at retirement. I look at my retirement the way Christians should look at retirement, of going, Jesus, what do you want to do with these years where I have more free time than I ever had before? Now, yes, I could go down and collect seashells, but also I have all this free time. What can I do for the glory of God? I gotta let go of this dream of having a, a beach house and a mountain house. Gotta let go of this, I gotta surrender this. I have to die to this dream that I'm gonna be able to have all this expendable income to be able to do all these you know, fun, crazy, fun things I do because Jesus calls me to be radically generous if he does call you to be that way. I gotta let go of these dreams. And this is where we have to go, there's a tragedy because I look downstream and I see how broken and messed up that is and it ends in really bad tragedy. But I look this way and I realize this is real life. This is real hope. This is the true life and is only found in Christ. And all this stuff down here, I'm not going to keep my eyes fixated on the stuff that's still in the lazy river portion of this because now, because I've read the word, I understand what's at the end. So I don't want what's in the middle. That's the problem with so many Christians right now. We want what's in the middle between right here, right now, and imminent pain, death, and destruction. But there's better stuff this way, I promise. It's upstream. It's gonna have to start with you dying to get there, to yourself, to your hopes, to your dreams, so that you can actually live to Jesus. The next part is F. F stands for fear of God. Now I know we're like, oh God. I knew we were going to get there. We got to hail hellfire brimstone. We're sinners in the hands of an angry God. I know it was going to get like this. Let me talk to you about what I really mean when I'm talking about fear of God. I'm not saying like, I want you to just be terrified of God. Like he's going to strike you down the moment you steal a Snickers bar from the, you know, the, the thing at work. Like, that's not what I'm talking about here. When I'm talking about the fear of God, I'm talking about a holy reverence that realizes that without him and without the power on display in your life, you are hopeless and you are helpless. The Bible talks about the fear of God this way, and I love what it says. It says, uh, Proverbs 9, 10, this is a lot of wisdom in this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the things I wanna know about, the truth I wanna have about relationships, about life, about parenting, about fatherhood, the fear of God is actually where the beginning of wisdom is. So I I trust God, I fear God. He is the true maker of the world. His word is what guides my life. I'm afraid of what life would be like without his governance and guidance. So I'm gonna surrender to this because this is where true life is. It says, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Jesus goes on from here and says some pretty alarming things in regards to fear. This is to give you a little bit of context of what's going on that made Jesus say these words. The disciples are having to have Jesus explain to them that if they're going to follow him, they're not going to be triumphant here on this earth. They're not going to walk around and have people bow down and kiss their feet here on this earth. If they're going to be followers of Jesus, they're not going to be kings with long flowy robes walking behind Jesus as part of his entourage, that that's not the type of kingdom he's coming to institute. And they're kind of going, Jesus, we don't really understand what you're after here. We thought you, are saying you're the king of king and the Lord of lords, but we're out here homeless and we don't really have enough food. Can you do one of those, uh, lunchables on the side of the mountain thing again? Cause we're all starving. And Jesus explains the persecution that they're facing this way. He says, have no fear of them. That's he's talking about the people who are uh, talking bad about and potentially persecuting. He says, Have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who, here's the really main part I want you to lean into. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He's saying, in this world, there are gonna be people who are gonna try to talk bad about you, to do bad things to you. They're gonna uh, abandon you. They're gonna gossip about you behind your back. They're gonna maybe even try to physically harm you. But do not fear them, because all that they can do for you is kill your body. They cannot kill your soul. And for us, even in our modern day life, nobody's really even trying to kill your body for being a Christian. Like we may unfollow you. That's like the worst persecution you guys are getting right now. Maybe take away some rights. I mean, there may be a time when stuff's coming, but, but nobody's whipping, beating and flogging you right now in this country for following after Christ. So he says, don't treat their approval or rejection like it's life or death. Because one, and this is our context, that nobody's killing you most likely. And two, Even if they did kill you, all they can do is stop your heart from beating. But once that heart stops beating, there is still a soul inside of you that will carry on for eternity somewhere. This is why he says, instead of fearing people, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And when he says him, he's talking about himself. He says, There's no fear that you need to have a people. The only fear that you ever need to have is a fear of me. The worst thing that somebody else could ever do to you is kill your body. But the worst thing that I can do is I can kill your body and I can destroy your soul in hell. Now, welcome to MCC. Here's what you need to understand. This is not me turning into some hellfire brimstone guy. I wouldn't, I really could care less what I'm known as necessarily as a preacher. The really main thing that I only hope you would say or when it's at my funeral and say, here's the one thing I wanna be known as, I wanna be a guy, I wanna be known as a guy who showed you what Jesus said. That's it. And this is what he said. And so like, don't shoot the messenger, don't get mad at me. This is Jesus though saying at the end of the line, I want you to fully understand that with me, life is great. And without me, it is absolutely terrible. And in between that, he is the one who judges, okay? And if you go to the cross and are crucified for the whole entire sins of the world and you rise again victoriously, you have rights and privilege to be that judge. And he stands there and he judges. And he says, did you either accept what I was giving you? Did you accept that I was your sacrifice? Did you put your life and your trust in me? Or did you not? And if you did not, he's saying that's where you were headed anyway. So it's not so much, please don't hear this verse as Jesus going like, I'm picking you up because I don't like you and I'm dumping you into hell and destroying your body and soul. No, that's where you're going anyway. If you're apart from Christ, your sin has separated you from a holy, righteous, perfect God. Okay, and so please don't hear this verse and go like, that's Jesus saying, I'm sending you to hell and destroying your body and I'm just crispy, you know, I'm, y'all turning into kindling and firewood down there and I chose to do it and I'm sending you that way. No, if you go there, it's your choice. Your choice, because you chose not to accept him, you chose not to put faith in him. And this is why we have to have this holy reverent fear of him because we don't wanna miss out on what he has for us. Paul's talking to the church in Philippi, And he says these words, that's the last half of Matthew. We'll keep going through there. Philippi says this, therefore, beloved, as as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's basically saying like, when the cat's away, don't play. Still keep doing the right things, even when I'm not here to see you doing them. He goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Now, sometimes we can hear that verse. And sometimes you can go to one of those real, real hell hellfire brimstone churches, and they'll tell you to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And the way they'll communicate that point is to say, if you've been sinning, you better make sure you've been forgiven. And if you haven't been forgiven when you've been sinning, you're hell, hell hellbound. And you've got to, you know, you you're you've got to get forgiveness the moment you do the bad thing. Because you're back in Hell Street. You can say you're saved. But you go do that one wrong thing, you better not get distracted. <laughs> because if, if, if a meteor was hit earth and blow it up and you haven't asked for forgiveness, you're not in fear and trembling of the God, well, you're toast. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is implying that salvation has been worked into you in the first place. That God has given you this salvation, that salvation is inside of you, your soul, that part that's going to rest for eternity, either in hell or in heaven. That part is saved and secure. And so he says, what I want you to do in this life is to work out, you have this salvation, you have this amazing, beautiful, holy thing inside of you. Work that thing out with fear and trembling. And here's what I believe when he talks about fear and trembling, what he's after here. Let me explain it by using one of the terms that our culture uses right now. Uh, raise your hand if you know what FOMO is. FOMO. All right, the Gen Z and millennial people in the room have got their hands up. Uh, All my uh, boomers and Gen Xers are like, is that a fungus in my feet? Is that that something I have to talk to my doctor about? FOMO stands for fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. And this is what happens, uh, some of you grandparents in the room, I'll explain this to you this way. Uh, When you text your grandkids, if you're that type of grandparent, which high five for texting, way to go. You text your grandkids and you say, Hey, I'd love for you to come over this weekend. I want to cook you, you know, cornbread and all your favorite food, blah, blah, blah. You, You text them that. And then the response you get is, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll let you know later on this week if I can. What's happening there in their response is FOMO. They're not telling you yes. And they're not telling you no because they have a fear of missing out of a better opportunity than coming in and eating cornbread at your house. What they don't wanna have happen, and I'm just telling this because I've been this grandkid, so don't be like, oh man, he's letting it all go now. Like I'm gonna to have to always eat cornbread at grandma's now. What happens in the life of, 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 of young people, and this happens to all of us is we want to leave our options open. So if something cooler comes up, like if one of our friends says, Hey, I want you to come down with me, we'll go down to Florida. And I got free tickets to, to go watch the brave spring training. We're going to get a bunch of autographs. It's going to be an awesome trip. We'll go to the beach in between games. It'll be great. You don't want to have to miss out on that because you got to go to grandma's and eat cornbread. And so we'll leave it wide open because we have a fear of missing out on better things that are coming. And what I don't wanna do, when I talk about the fear of God, and I talk about in regards to this verse, fear of missing out is not an unredeemable quality or aspect of life. Let me explain. If you really love God, and you really have put your faith and trust in Him, you should have a fear of missing out as well. I will take it a step further than FOMO, and we'll talk about FOMOog, all right? Let me explain. Let's redeem FOMO and we'll talk about FOMUG, all right? And you're like, what are we talking about right now? Here's FOMUG, fear of missing out on God. So when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's this fear and trembling of going, oh my goodness, I want to continue to work. If if the son of God is alive and well in me, I'm afraid of missing out what type of dad I will be if I don't let Jesus work through me all the way. I'm afraid of missing out what type of employee or boss or coworker I will be if Jesus doesn't work through me in this job. I'm afraid of what type of student I'll be at my high school if I don't let Jesus walk through these halls and live and act through. I'm afraid of missing out on the blessing that I'll receive by letting Jesus work in and through me. That's the fear of missing out on God and what God has for you and his best for your life. So let's let go of FOMO and let's lean into FOMUG. He goes on from there. We're going to talk about going upstream. We've got to have our identity in Christ. The Bible makes this one super clear, super evident. Probably one of my favorite places is Galatians 2.20. Paul's talking to the church and he's telling them about the reality that's not just for him, but also for them. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And again, when he's talking about I, he's talking about his flesh, his wants and desires. This is not Paul's way of saying, Hey, you know how Jesus was on the cross, and he was whipped and beaten, and he died? Like, this is not Paul saying, I was literally crucified, but it is his way of saying, in the same way that Jesus died on the cross and his flesh was dead and buried and he rose again. He's saying, all of my flesh is dead and buried and all my wants and my desires as Paul are gone away with. And he says, then it is no longer I who live because that I has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the only reason that Christ can live in him is because Christ is the only person who can be crucified and resurrect. And so Christ lives in me. So what that means is it's Christ in the marriage, not you. It's Christ as the dad or the mother, not you. It's Christ at work, not you. It's Christ at school, not you. And this should be freeing. It should be a little bit of a burden lifted off your shoulders because now it's not you as the high schooler, you as the struggling single parent. It's not you trying to be like Jesus in all those environments. It literally is the power of Jesus living and working through you because your identity is now in Him. Your identity is now in His victory and what He's accomplished, not what you think you need to. And this can be a struggle if you're like me and you have a tendency towards a performance-based identity. That's one of the things that is, uh, has, has caused me more trouble than I'd like to admit in my life, a performance-based identity. Probably one of the most embarrassing times I'm gonna share with you and publicly here. Um, in college, I played baseball and it was my senior year and my senior year, I wanted to go out with a bang. I wanted to have an awesome senior year. I was a two-way player, which, which meant that I was both a, pick, a pitcher and a hitter. I played offense and defense. And so I wanted to be able to be really good at all the things that I were doing. But it was about halfway through the season, I was having a very, very terrible slump. I could not hit water if I fell out of a boat. I was doing terrible at the plate. Pitching was kind of so-so, but it, it wasn't going really well either. Just having a really, really awful year. And so a few things started happening. I started, my, my way to solve problems is to work harder, to do the things that I was doing, to start doing new things and to work harder. That's how I solve things. I just, I just pound through the wall. If I work harder, it'll fix it. And so what I started doing was instead of waking up, spending time with God, I would wake up and I'd go work out. I'd wake up and I'd go across the streets to the batting cage. I'd wake up and I'd watch you know, online videos on how to figure out what to do better. I started doing everything I can to try to be better at baseball. Because when I started doing bad at baseball, I felt like I was a bad person, I felt like I was worthless. Spiled into, I'm useless to the team, I'm depressed. I thought I was gonna go out with a bang and go out with a, like this is terrible. Meanwhile, I know God has a call in my life. Meanwhile, I know I'm not gonna go play professional baseball. I know that's not part of God's plan or his future for me. And I'm supposed to be, I'm the only kid on the entire team who's a biblical studies major, not a business major. I'm looked at as like the chaplain on the team. I'm one of the team captains. And this one particular practice about halfway through the season we're doing a, what's called PFPs, pitcher fielding practice. And what we're going over is bunt defenses. So in this particular drill, I'm on the mound, coach is at home plate, and there's a runner who's going to eventually try to run to first, and I'm going to try to go and field this placed ball by our coach, field the ball, throw it to first base, and try to get the runner out. Okay, Now, the guy isn't actually bunting with the bat, the coach is doing it so he can make it harder and put it exactly where he were so we can have like focus and specific practice, all right? So I kind of fake the pitch, I see the ball roll like right there and I know immediately because I've done this before, that's gonna be a hard ball to get the guy out. The guy running is a very fast guy so I go with everything I have, slide down, pick up the ball and if first base is the drum kit, I throw it in the baptistry. Just launch it. I throw it with everything I have, spin, throw, and launch it into the Baptist tree. As the ball flies up into the fence, the guy starts running to second. I let out almost every cuss word that I know. All of that tension and everything that I'd been pretending like wasn't there and trying to still play cool, calm, and collective team captain guy, all of that erupts. And what I didn't know was that particular day was the day that the Little League team that our coach had decided to invite to one of our practices, they were in the stance. Yeah, I was there, it was bad. (laughs) And again, like, this is me. Biblical studies major. Like this is me team captain. This is me. Everybody knows I'm going to be a preacher when I graduate. This is me. And then there's all of these, you know, seven and eight year olds in the stands. Lit. They're like, okay, they're coming out to see what Christian college baseball looks like. And then <laughs> it's me dropping every word that I have ever heard that I should never say. And coach said two words, shoemake poles. Now, for those of you who are in the baseball world, um, Shoemaker, that's me. Pulls means there's a foul pole there and a foul pole there. You need to start running from that one to that one and then back and then forth until I tell you to stop. And so I put my head down, dropped my glove and started running for the whole last hour and a half of practice. Practice wraps up. I don't come in, I'm still running. Uh, guys start to leave. The guys who I rode with leave. And I'm like, man, that's a bummer. Um, they all leave. Uh, last person there is coach. And He just sits there and watches me run. He's like, looks on his phone, does some things. And I don't know what, I mean, I think he called his wife, said, I'm going to be home late or something. I'm still running. Finally, he says, come in. And uh, I come in and I just say, I'm sorry. He didn't even say anything back to me. I was like, this is scary. Um, and he was like Napoleon. Like, I mean, he was a shorter guy, but like very fiery, super mean, Um when he was angry. He, otherwise, he was a really uh, amazing guy. We get in his truck. <clears throat> it's a very quiet ride home, ride back to campus. And then he says, make. that is not who you are. Your identity is in Christ. The end. He didn't say say the end. That's all he said. And I just said, I know. And see, I don't know what your throwing a ball somewhere it shouldn't be moment is. Some of you guys, you have uh, picture frames in your house. They're covering up the hole in the drywall you punched. And guests don't know what's there, but you do. Your wife does. Kids, maybe. See, we, we all have things that when we are finding our identity and anything else, eventually, guys, I'm telling you, it is gonna blow up. It's gonna blow up in your face. And my hope and my prayer is that unlike me, there's not a lot of collateral damage where, where, where there's people in the stands watching you. But here's the newsflash. Most of the time, when you're pretending to be somebody you're not, and your identity is not in Christ, where it's a performance-based identity, an identity in how much money you make, how, an identity in how much comfort you have, an identity in whatever it is, eventually it's gonna blow up. And more often than not, there are people in the stands watching it blow up. And their opinion and their views of God is often impacted by how it goes wrong when your identity is not in Christ. So please, please trust that you don't have to perform for Jesus. That he is not, when you show up, if you make it through this life and you show up on the other side, he's not gonna say, well done, good and successful servant. Well done, good and great performance servant. All he's gonna say is well done, good and faithful servant. That's why the hope of a Christian life is not success. It's faith, faith, faith. So after our identity in Christ, next thing is we've got to repent. Another word that we're not really crazy about is repent. Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew 4, 17. He said these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this word repent in the Bible, a lot of times when people hear sermons or stories or a pastor start talking about repentance, we look at it as like, oh, I know what repentance means. That means I'm going this way and I gotta do an about face and I turn this way and I stop doing those bad things and I start doing the good things. Well, yes, that's Old Testament repentance. If you go to the Old Testament and you find any word in the Old Testament and you look up what that means in Hebrew, that is what it means. But when you see the word repentance in the New Testament, New Testament repentance does not mean turn around and go a different direction. New Testament repentance means change your mind. It's a Greek word, metaneo. I can only say it once, metaneo. means change your mind. Now in regards to drifting, this is where this is really important. A lot of times people think, okay, I put my faith and my hope and trust in Christ and I repented of my sins. And that's the last time I have to. I repented. I repented. I got, maybe I got baptized. I repent and I believe that's what I did to receive salvation. I repented and I believed the problem is repentance is something that needs to be ongoing. Repentance is not something you just do once. Now there's this really dangerous doctrine in the church that says repentance is it. And they'll come and they'll highlight and they'll say, no, 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 no. Repentance isn't just stop doing bad things. And they'll lean into stuff like this. They'll say, repentance isn't just go the different direction. And they'll make the point. Anybody can stop doing bad things. If you're a murderer, you can stop murdering. If you're a liar, you can stop lying. That doesn't mean that you have put your faith in your hope and your trust in Christ. You've just stopped doing bad things. So the repentance, the turn and stop doing bad things and go a different direction. That is not what saves you. What saves you is your faith. You're saved by faith. Now I wholeheartedly agree with that entire statement. The only issue I have with that is if you're not very careful, what we do is we give a really cheap grace that says, all I had to do was change my mind about Jesus. That's all I had to do. Oh, repent means change your mind. Well, I've changed my mind about him. He's my Lord and savior. He died for my sins. And I'm just gonna keep on keeping on. Now, you see where hopefully this is a little dangerous. I'll illustrate it like this. You guys eat peanut butter, right? We're peanut butter people out. Let's go, peanut butter, yes. Say uh, Jif, right? Jif just had this thing where like, they recalled a bunch of Jif peanut butter because it was salmonella, I think, in there. Well, say there's this mom. And this mom, she very methodically makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for her kids. That's what they wanna eat for lunch every single day of the week. And so this mom, she has peanut butter and jelly in her pantry, and the week's getting ready to start. It's Saturday. Week's getting ready to start, and she knows she's getting ready to make all these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for these kids, okay? Well, Saturday afternoon, newscast comes out online everywhere. Jif peanut butter no longer has salmonella, has anthrax inside of it. You eat Jif peanut butter, your kids are going to die. You're going to die. Anybody who eats Jif peanut butter is going to die. Please you know, dispose safely of all Jif peanut butter. If you eat Jif peanut butter, you're going to die. So the mom sees that she, she looks and these are reputable news sources. This is not just one of these weird online things that you see on the back alleys of the internet. It's like reputable. It's everywhere. Everybody, the consensus is Jif peanut butter has anthrax. You eat it, you die. She believes that's true. And then she changes her mind about Jif peanut butter. No longer is this something good for consumption for my family. Monday rolls around. She's getting ready, getting the kids ready for school. She pulls out those two loaves of white bread. She grabs that Jif peanut butter, grabs a butter knife, squirts some jelly on there, holds it up, puts it in the baggie, sends them to school. Now, what does that mom have to be in order to still feed her kids Jif peanut butter? Crazy, okay, that's one. What's another one? You can say it. Evil, wicked, yes. Crazy or, or wicked, crazy or evil. And again, this is what I'm trying to get you to, to say, I have changed my mind about Jesus. I realize who he is and what he is and all the things about him. I understand all these things. And now my mind has changed about Jesus. But I continue to go about living my life, doing all the things that I was doing before that. Does it really show that I've changed my mind? If I continue to go and do everything that I said I, I, uh, that is completely against this Jesus, I say I've changed my mind about, if I continue to go and do all those things, I'm one of two things crazy or wicked. That's why we can't just say, oh, I repented. I changed my mind about things. No. Hear me. Before you hear me saying, like, you have to do works to be saved. You have to put faith in Jesus. And your faith in Jesus, you repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. That's what we do to receive salvation from Jesus. But if I do nothing else after quote unquote being saved, through my repentance and my belief, if I do nothing after that, there's nothing I have to do to be saved. But if I do nothing after I am quote unquote saved, you're not, you're not, you're just not. And, and we can want this to be true about Jesus, but we know this is not true about anything about how we treat each other or anything about how the world works. We just know that's not. You would not take a wife who said, yeah, I really love you and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm so appreciative of you as my husband, but I really like sleeping with all these other guys. And you would just go, well, that's, I get it. Yeah, well, at least your mind has changed. You know, you're secure as my wife. No. We don't, that's not how this operates. This is not how this works. And so what I'm after here in regards to drift is we have to realize that our repentance is something that continues to happen. So the question we need to be asking Jesus is, Jesus, what do you want to change my mind about next? Jesus, you changed my mind about people who have a different skin color than me. And I realize now fill in your blank. We're all creating your image. Jesus, you changed my mind about what does it mean to be a godly husband. And It's not kicking my feet up and just going to work and coming home and making some money. I actually need to be a spiritual provider first and foremost for my family, not a fiscal provider. Jesus, you changed my mind about what the church is. It's actually this place where I can come in and connect with people. It's continually... If I, if I want to avoid drifting away from Jesus, I've got to ask him this question. What do you want to change my mind about next? Because that's repenting. What, what am I... I I'm repenting of my old ways of doing my life these ways, and I'm going to follow after you. That's what repentance looks like. Last thing, if you want to avoid the drift, is discipline. Now, I know if fear of God wasn't bad and repent wasn't bad, discipline definitely is. Because our world has hijacked this this word discipline, right? Like if if your wife comes in and says, hey, the principal sent an email home and said that, our kids getting disciplined at school for things that they did. You don't go. I bet they did some really awesome stuff. I can't wait to hear. They're probably a student of the month after this. Like we hear discipline, and we think discipline is bad. We think discipline is a really, really bad thing. Nobody wants discipline. Avoid discipline at all costs. Discipline is bad. But maybe in the world it is. Maybe how the world hijacks it. So that it can continue, again, the world is created for you to go slow, easy, peaceful, lull you to sleep, so wouldn't it make sense that Satan would love to manipulate how we think when we hear the word discipline? I wanna show you how God's word talks about discipline. We'll get there in depth in a little while, but in Hebrews 12, seven, eight, it says this, for it is discipline, that it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons this God is treating you as sons, is referring back to the discipline. It is the fact that you are God's son that you get disciplined. And the fact that you're getting disciplined, it's proof positive that you are a child of God. And he says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's like, that's what dads do. That's a good thing. That's a sign you have a dad. To prove the point even further, he says, if you're left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. So the point that he's making, I'm hopefully trying to make to you too, is discipline isn't bad. Discipline means you have a dad. It means you have a father who loves you and cares about you and wants what's best for you. And that discipline is actually a good thing. The author of Hebrews goes on in the next couple of verses. Hebrews 12, 11. He says, for at the moment, discipline seems painful. We all collectively go, amen. It is painful. It is painful. Seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. He's telling you, there is good stuff upstream. There's peaceful fruits of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Discipline. I don't know what just happened, but uh, that's cool. Um, (laughs) Who knows? So let me explain this to you um, like this. Discipline equals freedom. Here's what I mean by that. So there's a guy who goes to our church. His name's Andy Daughtery and Andy is really good at running. Really, really good at running, like runs marathons and stuff like that. Now I am not good at running. I despise running. Don't want to run but I'm really good at picking up heavy things, okay? So if there was 500 pounds on the stage and you asked me to lift this up, because I have had the discipline of continual bodybuilding and powerlifting, I could deadlift that 500 pounds. Now Andy, he has not been trained in the discipline of bodybuilding. He could not lift that 500 pounds. He does not have that freedom. But if you came in here and said, Trent, you and Andy are gonna go run a marathon today, all right? or even a half marathon, we'll just knock it on back. You go run a half marathon because of how Andy has disciplined his life, how he has been a regimented runner. He has right now at this moment, even in the rain, probably the freedom to go and run a half marathon. I, my friends do not, I could not do that. I would not make it the 13 point, whatever, or the 26.2 that is a half or a full marathon wouldn't, I don't have that freedom right now. And so when I say discipline equals freedom, this is a life thing, but it's also a God thing. He wants you to experience freedom. Jesus came, I've said, I've come to set the captives free. So here's what I'll hopefully try to show you in this when I explain discipline equals freedom. I want you to, for a second, don't worry about any of these things over here and pay attention to this side. This is the stuff that falls under the category of what we all will drift to in life, okay? This is stuff that you don't have to try to get into and you're going to get into many of you. This whole column right here may represent even your life as you walked in today. You don't have to try to be distracted right now. You just are some of you as I'm speaking. You're already on your phone. You're distracted. You don't have to try. You didn't drift into it or you did drift into it. It wasn't an active endeavor. You're just distracted. Anxiety. The world is created to make you fearful and more afraid of all the things you can possibly be afraid of. You don't have to try to be afraid of stuff, just live and you'll be afraid. You'll be anxious. Gluttony, all right? We're talking about specifically like, not just overeating right here, but overindulging. You don't have to try and you'll you'll wake up and go, man, did we really finish all of season four today? Yep, overindulge. Man, did I really just spend 75 minutes on TikTok? I'm late for work. We overindulge. Man, did I eat an appetizer, a salad, the full meal, and the dessert? And then my kids plate, and then their dessert? Yeah, I did. Wow, I can't move. You don't have to try. You're just gonna end up shallow, surface level, not deep. You don't have to try to make your life complicated. It'll get complicated all by its little old self, won't it? You don't have to try to be lonely. Our world shifts us towards loneliness. We get fake connection on our phone and we don't have any sort of real connection in real life. You don't have to try to be lonely, you just will be. No one had to train you to have preferences, to think your way is the best way. Oh no, we, we are a, we're a real tree family. Oh no, we do ham and not turkey. Like we have preferences here, okay? We're a Ford family. We have preference. No, my church does drums and we have a contemporary service. We have preference. Nobody had to teach you that preference. Entitlement. You, you, we, we should be served. I, I, I'm here. I'm the patron. I, you, you exist to serve me. You don't have to try to make anybody entitled. They're entitled. Concealing, like hiding the things that we do that we don't want anybody to know about. We, we don't have to try to do that. That's just what happens. You don't have to try to get lost. You just continue to live through the world, and you're, you're going to be lost. You're going to be direction. What should I do next? You know? You're going to be buying books from you know Amazon, like, how to solve a midlife crisis. Okay, well, I don't know what to do. I'm lost, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't feel, I feel weird here and I feel weird there. I don't know what to do. And you don't have to drift into being miserable because you may already be. And these are all the things that just happen when you drift. And so when I show up and I say, discipline leads to freedom. What I'm specifically talking about, and I think God's word is is so good to do this. There's not a specific list of what is called spiritual disciplines in the Bible, but we can see the things that we're supposed to do spiritually and we can tell that these are the disciplines. These are what a disciple does. There's no coincidence that when Jesus calls people, he calls them disciples and they're bounding within the word disciple is what? Discipline, okay? And there are practices, there are things that we do if we're disciples. Uh, There's a really good book by a guy named Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. I recommend it to everybody, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. These are the disciplines that he lines out. There's probably more, there's probably less. You can pick and choose your list, but let's just walk through some of these. These are spiritual disciplines, the discipline of meditation. Now, again, with what we're talking about here, meditation, if I can practice this discipline of meditation, it frees me up from distraction. If I can practice the discipline of prayer, now I know that I am not the one who makes everything happen in my life. In prayer, I'm tapping into an outside resource who can solve my problem, who's sovereign over my problems. In the spiritual discipline of fasting, I now learn how to abstain from things. I don't have to overindulge. I'm actually gonna go the opposite direction and not indulge in any of those things for the sake of being able to see and savor Jesus. With the spiritual discipline of simplicity, I can say, I, I just need Jesus. I need the few clothes, I need the few food, I need my daily bread and nothing more and nothing less. I don't need this complicated life that the world offers. It frees me from that. And the discipline of solitude. Now, I'm being lonely because I want to be. I'm not being lonely because I have to be. I'm lonely to seek God. I'm lonely, I'm seeking out to be just with God because I know that this is the most important relationship in my life. So I'm free from feeling lonely like I have to have all these other people in my life to be able to make it worth anything. No, I know my worth and I experience that in solitude with God. Through the discipline of service, I get freed from entitlement. I come to this place where I realize that to be a Christian is to be a servant. And if I'm not hearing from God, I need to go serve. Because when I do that, I will hear from him. I will learn from him. I will see him for who he is. And I will realize that Jesus himself said, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So if Jesus chose to leave his entitlement at the cross, I'll leave mine here too. Worship. When I practice the spiritual discipline of worship. I'm free from worshiping idols. Because I see in my discipline of showing up consistently being worshiping Jesus. He is the true thing to only be worshiped. When I practice spiritual discipline of guidance. I realize now that I have other people in my life who have Jesus in mind, who are helping me and showing me the truth in the way. I've submitted to having a group of people in my life to hold me accountable, to give me godly direction and congruence with God's word so I'm not lost. I have people who are guides with me in this life. And then the discipline of celebration. That's a big part of what we do here every Sunday. And it's a big part of what we're getting ready to do as we baptize uh, two people, two young people. We celebrate. And it frees me up from this miserable life that I would drift into. where nothing and only the things that I can do are the things worth getting excited about. And see, because we're rule followers, some of you are taking pictures of this and going like, "Okay, I just got to go start doing all these things. I got to get all these out, and I'm going to be free from anxiety or gluttony or shallow or complexity. I'm going to be free from my loneliness. I'm going to be free from my preference or entitlement conceal. I'm going to be free. From, I want to be free from these, so I got to go do all these things. These are my things. These are my target." Please, please, please don't make the things on the left of this the target. The target is freedom. Because I want freedom, because I want to be liberated from this life that I would drift from, I'm gonna do these things because what I'm really after is freedom in Christ. And it's through the cross, which I hope you see in the middle of all this, this is where we can go from being a slave to what we would drift into and being free to practice the discipline. It's, it's, it is by the cross, through the cross of Christ. That I can come to this place where I say, I am no longer a slave to my flesh. I'm no longer going to balk against and run away from discipline. I want the freedom to be able to be the most generous person in my family. I want the freedom to be able to give my time to the people who are in need, however that might be. I want the freedom from my flesh and the lust of my eyes like I've never had before. So I'm going to pour my heart out to God in prayer. I'm gonna find accountability to guide me into that in my life. Because what I really want is freedom. So the question becomes, are you a disciple? Are you someone who has decided to be disciplined in the works, ways, life, and love of Christ? Have you decided? That's what it's really all about. We can talk about drift. And we can talk about moving upstream, but the reality and truth about drift is no one really decides to drift, you just drift. But in order to go upstream, you have to decide. It's no coincidence that decide is right there in the root of discipline and decide is right there in the root of disciple. It has to be a decision that you make to say, I will go upstream, not for Jesus, but I'll go upstream with him. Every step of the way, every row of the boat, he is with me. So it all boils down to decide. As we receive communion, we're going to sing that song where we can hopefully boldly as a church proclaim, I have decided. I have decided to lay my life down, to put it at the foot of the cross and actually follow him with everything I have. I have decided. And though no one go with me, I'm still going to follow. The cross is before me and now the world is behind me. I'm going upstream to the cross. I'm I'm leaving the downstream stuff of the world. I'm going to him. And as you receive communion today, my prayer is that you ask Jesus that simple question. What do I need to decide on today? And when you pray and when you get your answer, know he'll be with you as you go into that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to be a body broken so that we can be put back together. Father, we thank you for your son who has shed blood to forgive us of our blood guilt. And Jesus, as we get ready to receive communion, I pray that your people would meet with you. And as we get ready to celebrate the baptisms, I pray that we are reminded once again that you change lives in your name.